am very happy to be here today once again with uh, two of my dearest uh, guests and friends, from one from United States and the other one from United Kingdom. I'm very happy to have you here once again with me on the legacy of John Williams, Mike Matesino. Mike, thank you for being with us today. Hi, Maurizio. And from United Kingdom, joining me today as a co-host once again is Tim Burden. Hi, Tim. How are you? Great to see you. Today, uh, we are all here to discuss and maybe to shed some insights about the newly uh, fresh new release of uh, one of John Williams' most recent and probably, I would say, the most underrated scores of recent years, which has been just uh, re-released by Intrada Records uh, in a newly expanded remastered edition uh, produced and curated by Mike. Uh, about Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds from 2005. So I would like to start with you, Mike, uh, talking about um, how this came about first. So why War of the Worlds, which probably is the most recent uh, expanded schools from John Williams you tackled on. Am I right? <clears throat> yeah, that would be correct. So I think we finally exceeded um, the, the one we had before. This was the third Harry Potter Right. And um, War of the Worlds. It was simply that Entrada told me that they had an okay from Paramount to do it. Um, and uh, it was really as simple as that. Something that recent was, was um, you know, John Williams had no objection to at all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was really as simple as that. And we have. Um, an issue here with regard to the reuse payments for the American Federation of Musicians. Mm. Um, and there was a date established in the year 2015 um, whereby if the score was more than 10 years old, there mm. was no reuse payments um, applicable, mm. uh, provided you did fewer than 5,000 units. And um, if you accommodated by printing the orchestra list in the package. Mm -hmm. So 2005 was the cutoff and the language of that deal was such that it wasn't a floating date. So we sort of been stuck with it. Mm -hmm. And so War of the Worlds came in right close to the edge of uh, early July 2005. Right. Uh, after which anything recorded after that is subject to reuse. Mm. Um, so War of the Worlds uh, by default is about the most recent John Williams score that could be done. Mm -hmm. I've heard that there had been conversations and negotiations since then about either sliding the date or making it something more recent. But given everything that's going on in the world right now, I don't think it's anybody's uh, high priority. Mm -hmm. So. But anyway, so there we are. So it was as simple as that. Trotta said they were getting the license for it, and uh, um, we were mm. going to do it. And so let's try to go back in time for a while, and let's go get back uh, to 2005 to get a little bit of context for this movie and score, because uh, 2005 was kind of a red herring year for John Williams, as Steven Spielberg himself put it in the liner notes of the Munich uh, soundtrack album. I mean, because that year John did four major scores composed in a, I think, in a fairly short amount of time. 
one right after the other. So we, John basically started 2005 with uh, the then last Star Wars movie, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, and then jumped right, right after he finished that movie, uh, recording that movie, he jumped on literally in a minute, basically, to uh, composing scores for Steven Spielberg's War of the Wars, which was a major blockbuster announced for that summer uh, because it was starring Tom Cruise and it was really one of the biggest uh, movies that was uh, going out in that summer. So let's try to, to focus on the timeline that John used. So I guess the writing process for him started uh, a little bit earlier than usual, Am I right, Mike? Well, first of all, the two films had sort of overlapping post-production schedules, mm. both with uh, visual effects done by Industrial Light and Magic, obviously. So there was a lot of crossover, a lot of um, a few people that were working on both at the same time, not just John. And um, for that, it was for that reason because, of course, the Star Wars films are a very big uh, effort. Um, even on their own, let alone while you're trying to do other scores. But um, for that reason, Steven Spielberg locked certain sequences in the film first. Um, and John scored them in with either temporary sound effect, uh, temporary visual effects or previses, things like that. So, but it was, but uh, Steven Spielberg committed to locking the sequences so that John could score some of those major set pieces in the film first and then later on when revenge of the sith was basically completed entirely um he would look at the rest of the film with the uh, dialogue scenes and things that had to sort of come together that were um uh a, a little bit simpler not basically the main set piece action scenes and then he could sort of uh, fill it in and um score it um, and complete the project. And for that reason, they actually use a different methodology of mm -hmm. um, naming conventions for the cues because mm -hmm. a lot of those big set pieces, there was no way of knowing where in the movie they would end up in terms of what reel or how far into the picture. Mm -hmm. So um, Don came up with a lettering system where it was MA, MB, MC, MD, all the way through the alphabet, however many there were. Um, mm -hmm. and, and those were then combined later with the cues that were more traditionally numbered, you know, 4M1, 6M2, that sort of thing. So yeah. it was a very difficult thing to keep track of um, for me when I finally got there, but um, for a variety of reasons. But uh, it, was, it was a way of getting the thing done and um, getting the score sort of uh, pieced together so that uh, both pictures could... Uh, be completed and released uh, for summer 2005, which mm -hmm. was um, a busy year, but also that sort of climaxing um, sort of five or six busy years, beginning with the uh, episode one of Star Wars and then the three Harry Potters all intermixed along with other Spielberg films. So yeah. that was a very busy, remarkable period where the guy turned 70, and uh, um, but he was just on fire. Yes. And and do you think uh, that change of methodology basically also influenced or um, in some way maybe, inf yes, influenced the, 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 the writing itself of the music? Because uh, I was listening today to the new this new fantastic presentation and I must say that it truly sounds 
mind-blowing in terms of sound quality in terms of uh, presence in terms of you know dynamic it's it's really one of the probably one of one of the loudest probably John Williams scores I can think of but also one of the most varied in terms of colors and I was noticing how much John uh, maybe more than any other occasion especially in, in Spielberg's movies uh, avoided um, an approach based on leitmotif and instead tried to find a way to score more uh, the environment or the inner emotions of, of the movie or the, the, the inner feelings instead of you know going to the traditional accompaniment kind of uh, traditional scoring he, he usually does for, for these kind of movies. So do you think the way also he, he approached the movie in terms of scheduling and so on influenced also his writing? I wouldn't really know, but I'm inclined to think that it didn't have anything to do with it. Um, I, I think that the movie just speaks for itself and that he instinctively went for the approach that seemed right, probably based on some basic conversations with Steven Spielberg about um, what type of music would be, what the tone would be. And it seems to have a kinship with the, the, the direction he was going in with the two recent sci-fi films that Spielberg had previously done, AI and Minority Report. They seem to be of a kind um, and uh, um, sort of existing in the same musical universe. There's sort of, sort of a relationship there to me. But I think just as always, um, the movie itself would just speak and John would go with what instinctively seemed to be the right approach. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's some definitely some parallels there and I'm glad you mentioned that. And one of the things it was struck me about 2005, just going back to that kind of um, inception area. The, you know, one of the things I will always remember about that uh, period is the fact that uh, obviously, yes, he was so busy, but <laughs> he, Williams had to cancel a big LSO concert due to War of the Worlds. Um, oh, really? He, yeah, he, he promised the London Symphony Orchestra a massive concert um, after because obviously he was there for Revenge of the Sith. And sadly, you know, because of the schedules, it was just such a massively busy year for him. He had to cancel uh, because, I mean, Dirk Brosse, he did a wonderful job, um, as, as we know he does. Uh, he, he was the conductor and uh, it was it was great. Look, you know, the concert worked out great. But, um, it, <laughs> but you know, that aside, yes, I mean, musically speaking, what I love about Royal of the Worlds as well as a film, uh, it's tight. You know, it's one of the few films that's under two hours. We all know Spielberg can often quite regularly go over two hours. You know, it's tight, it's under two hours. And there's this kind of uh, earthiness, which is obviously, I suppose, uh, obvious because of the the subject matter. But, uh, you know, whenever you, when you, you think of the opening of the film, there's very sparse music um, using almost the model of, Private Ryan, to an extent, you know, it's it's almost twenty, it's almost twenty minutes before the music kicks in, isn't it? I mean, and, and I think there's there's many parallels which uh, we can all those kind of telling Spielberg and Williams signs, and the even you know the, early on in the film, I, I love how there's this kind of tracking shot uh, whenever Ray's coming down from this massive, ridiculously massive crane, the lorry is going across uh, in the docks. And the wonderful tracking shot, and, and there's lots of low angle shots as well, which is almost kind of, I don't know whether you guys think it's a little nod of the hat to Orson Welles. I don't know 
you know, the, you know the way Orson Welles loved the low angle shots and Citizen Kane. I, I don't know whether it's that, but I mean, there are some kind of fantastic marriages, and of course, the sound design marriage of music. I mean, there's one of the most obvious things I, I think in the film. I'm sure you both agree. I um, <laughs> there you, you, there's a lot that we can go into, and I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know whether I'll be able to really articulate all of it. I'd like to. Um, we tend to do our very long chats that take you guys. <laughs> I'm knowing if you are, and I'm sort of glad that, um, um, not glad that I had the little technical gaff a little bit earlier that kept us from starting when we wanted to. But the fact that it's later in the afternoon and I poured myself a glass of Chianti, as you could probably see. Um, so maybe. <laughs> You know, to get back to you, Maurizio, what you said about putting it in context, if we could go maybe into some personal context. Yes. For, um, and maybe get a little candid here. Um, you know, first of all, I think there's a sense, at least I feel it, um, everything feels so tenuous and very vulnerable right now. You never know um, what's going to happen when you turn on the news. Yes. Uh, right now, things seem kind of grim and it's uh, um, almost to the point where what you see in War of the Worlds almost seems like it's, it's you'd rather have that than what's really going on going on in the world right now mm -hmm. um, but to go back to 2005 um, full disclosure here um, even before I saw it well I should say first of all when I saw it initially I really didn't care for it um, and the uh, just the very idea that Steven Spielberg was doing it, I didn't like because I remembered very, very clearly how he had often said that he could not um, think of himself doing a story about aliens coming to Earth and being malevolent and being invasive. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those comments go back to the aborted initial attempt to do a Close Encounter sequel. Mm -hmm. Um, where they had a script called Night Skies, and it was quite a long in development with that, where it was based on this famous sort of um, uh, incident in UFO mythology of a Kentucky farmhouse um, surround it had supposedly having uh, aliens terrorizing them. Um, recently, that incident was actually used as uh, the basis for one of the episodes of a series called Project Blue Book, which Robert Zemeckis is a producer. Oh, yes. Um, but that was sort of the basis for Night Skies, and Spielberg always gave as the reason why he didn't do that project was because he couldn't see aliens coming across space for such distance and with such effort only to just eat us or blow us up or whatever. Um, and I kind of just uh, um, thought of it maybe just, I, I didn't really want to see him do that. Um, at the same time, um, being here in the industry, there were already rumblings about, um, before we saw the movie, about DreamWorks making a deal to uh, sell itself as a film studio to Paramount. And there was a sort of a vibe going on that this very sudden announcement of Spielberg doing War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise and that it was going to be made very, very quickly had something to do um, with that, because we know it was a uh, DreamWorks Paramount co-production, and it just had that sense about it. So, um, 
uh, I was kind of disposed to not liking it for that reason. But also, um, as we all know, when the movie came out, Spielberg spoke up about the relation, his approach to that story as it related to 9-11. And as we know, the movie is filled with imagery and scenes that sort of remind us of 9-11. And I think that was another reason why I kind of wasn't ready to go there. Because uh, being a New Yorker, and when I was at university, I was in sight of the Twin Towers every single day. Um, and so this movie opened on less than uh, four years after those events, um, which even though I wasn't in New York at the time, affected me very profoundly. And um, I went back for the one year anniversary of 9-11 um, and uh, went participated in very very big ceremony in near ground zero um where there was actually a service um that i got into at trinity church wall street very very famous um, um anglican church that goes back to um, the founding of the united states and there was a service there um at which was the archbishop of canterbury and the presiding bishop of the United States and the bishop of New York all together uh, dedicating a new bell that was made in the same foundry where the Liberty Bell was made. Um, and uh, they rang it to mark the moments that the planes hit the towers and the collapse of each tower. Um, and then, you know, crowds in the streets. I talked to a lot of people, people who had actually been there, felt the need to return a year later to deal with it. Broadway lined still with um, all of those um, pictures and memorials and photos of missing people um, there around St. George's Chapel, which is just up the street. It's the chapel of Trinity Church, um, had been turned into a permanent memorial. It was the sort of the headquarters for the rescue operation and the relief center for the fire fires and the rescuers and all that. Um, and they kept all of those memorials, which we see some things like that in War of the Worlds, reminding us of that. So, so soon after it, um, I just was not ready for it. Mm -hmm. um, and was rather dismissive of it. And uh, that's sort of where I was with it um, when it first uh, opened. So that's sort of my context. Mm -hmm. Now I can tell you that um, when I looked at the movie again, I did a complete 180 on it now. Just a complete 180 on it. Um, and I'm remembering just, you know, there's some very difficult emotional things sort of attached to this. Um, a very, very long time, Steven Spielberg's post-production um, supervisor and basically executive in charge of post-production and, and for years overseeing the care and the remastering of Stephen's older films um, was Marty Cohen. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lost Marty earlier this year, mm -hmm. which was very sad. I was very close with him and he was a dear, dear man. Um, but um, I got to see the recent 4K transfer of War of the Worlds where uh, there was actually a 4K disc made and this was right before um, the pandemic started. And I recently just sort of um, got a new 4K player and 4K TV monitor. Um, and it was one of the first things I got to 
see on it. And I was really surprised how nice of a transfer it was. And the color, it was, it's more colorful than mm. I remembered it being. And when I went back and looked at old transfers, that, I was, con that con was confirmed, it was more colorful, um, as was Saving Private Ryan. Um, and I guess Janusz Kaminski, the cinematographer, would sort of rethink things when it came to doing these 4K HDR transfers. And then there just seemed to be a bit more range of color than what I remembered from the time, which always seemed to be subdued and bleached out. And yeah. I know, Tim, that's why I told you to check out the new transfer if you're going to watch the movie again. But yeah. it really played a role in changing my feeling about it. And I think that now, the 15 years later, where 9-11 is almost two decades now in the past, um, that part of it... Um, didn't affect me as much and now i saw with the perspective of time more about what um, steven spielberg was going for and what he had seemed ready to face at the time and what he was trying to help uh, all of us and particularly those in america where the story is set to sort of come to terms with that but um four years on i was not ready um but looking at it now this year first for the 4k transfer and then with um, working on the music uh, I just did a complete turnaround on um, my appreciation for it and admiration for it. Yes, because I think that uh, probably uh, it, it's absolutely true that uh, the the nine eleven uh, um, theme uh, it goes undercurrent throughout the whole movie. There are because, as you said, there are some very striking. Uh, imagery that really reminds us about that tragic experience that the whole world basically uh, watched together at the same time it was probably the first time in history that the whole world was tuned in to watch a collective tragedy at the same exact same moment uh, but in my own views because I too uh, re-watched the film not too long ago and what uh, struck me uh, was the fact that the film seems to talk about uh, even broader uh, themes about uh, the sins of the fathers and how those sins fall on their children uh, and how this panicked sense of care that the the character of Ray uh, portrayed by Tom Cruise I think in a very very good performance uh, from him uh, is this way of trying to uh, get getting care of their own of his own kids but without uh, being able to offer true comfort or real protection and in some way the character of of ray seems like the the depiction or a symbol maybe of the of a country which is unable to protect uh, his own children in a way her, her own children so and also the, all those scenes where uh, Ray tried to blindfold or cover the eyes of the young uh, Rachel is is a kind of a, an image which really puts that thing into into a very striking uh, visual uh, translation in a way because it seems like a way to protect kids from actual violence but without too much regret in it. Uh, so Spielberg tried to imagine. Uh, a country under a state of siege for the first time and see how the average man probably would react. So would you agree with that view in, in broader terms? I certainly would. I think there's even, I would go even further with it and maybe we will, which I'll try. Um, 
But I should say, you know, um, initially, um, when I was first starting work on this, um, I had intended to write the liner notes. I really wanted to. And part of it was as I was working on the music, things started coming to me. And I, well, I should say initially I wasn't going to. Jeff Bond really wanted to do them. But as I worked on the music, I started feeling like I had a different point of view and a different way into them that I hadn't expected. Mm-hmm. And this all came from the work on the music itself. So I really thought, no, I'd like to do this. Um, then when the project got done um, and I tried, I went and did some research and then I tried to start writing. It just wasn't coming. And I thought I was on a roll because last autumn um, we've talked in previous uh, chats about The River and Far and Away, which I wrote back to back and then followed by another one. Um, that's not come out yet. I did three sets of liner notes in a row, and I thought, okay, I've got some momentum going. This is going to be great. But then it wasn't coming, and I think it just was a matter of uh, how everything had just changed with the world. I got into a predicament where I was just happy to be working around with music, and every time I tried to write, it's like I couldn't even make out a shopping list. So (laughs) Jeff was very patient. First, we talked about collaborating. Then we talked about uh, me throwing ideas at him. And finally, I just gave up, and I said, let's just go ahead and write it, because I think everything that I have to say is not really completely to do with the music, and and we can't uh, um, really go on forever, you know? We want three to four thousand words, and so I said, "Look, just go ahead and do it. You want to do it? You need the work." So I just sort of pulled out of it, and actually thought that, well, maybe when it's out, we can do one of these chats where some of this would come out. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I think some of what occurred to me, we should go back and talk about. I, it seemed like the movie got a lot of criticism at the yes. time. Um, yeah. And even I noticed after the soundtrack getting lost, um, some of this criticism coming up again, some of the same things that it said um, about Tom Cruise being miscast, um, about um, the children being annoying, uh, about the ending being unbelievable. Um, and uh, I don't agree with any of that anymore. And I would challenge people to give it another look and put it in another light. Um, and again, a lot of this comes from needing the perspective of time and, and looking back at it. Um, and I think also to a degree looking at it alongside some of Spielberg's other films. Yes. Um, there's a lot of context to um, um, explore here. Um, but what occurred to me as I was listening to the music and watching the movie again. Um, you know, I, I kind of don't know where to sort of uh, start with all these um, observations, but I think, first of all, let's go back to the source novel and then to other adaptations um, that followed. Um, the story was always meant to be a commentary on the time in which it was told. Yes. When H.G. Wells originally wrote it, it was probably um, supposed to be a um, indictment of imperialism, colonialism. Um, when Orson Welles did the radio adaptation in 1938, it was playing on the fears of the upcoming Second World War. 
And then when the, uh, Paramount, um, George Powell production in 1953 um, was playing on the fears of the atomic age. So um, the story was always timely and, um, you know, uh, resonated with the era in which it was told. And I think by doing it the way he did it, Steven Spielberg honored that. Um, but if you look at what the movie doesn't do, the movie does not show you, um, uh, does not, first of all, does not tell you that it's Martians. Mm -hmm. Because that, in fact, would be unbelievable to a modern audience. Um, there were subtle things to sort of nod towards Mars, but we actually assume that these invaders are not from Mars. Um, it does not show you um, military or government characters. Um, it does not show you the point of view um, outside this uh, family of people experiencing things. It doesn't shift the point of view outside of what they can see. We only see what they see. And it, and it doesn't show you things like uh, whole entire cities or famous landmarks being blown up. It doesn't tell you um, what the military is doing and how they're forming their attack and all that. The 1953 version did that. This is actually a very focused, intimate, first-person perspective yes. on this, and that, and the, as was the novel. So it, it is, in fact, a very faithful um, adaptation of H.G. Wells' original intent. But um, I think some of the interesting things that I noticed are... Um, how there's clues. I, I've discovered that there's just clues throughout the movie um, about what it's really, really saying. Um, we see um, uh, Ray's house is already a mess when we see it. It's like he didn't need any outside help to make it a mess. It doesn't have to, nobody had to come in and destroy it. And in fact, the first damage that's done to it is by himself throwing a baseball. Um, then he notices that the wind is going from the people towards the storm, rather than the storm coming from the clouds to the people. Um, and of course we have these machines buried underground. Um, rather than coming down from the sky. They're buried on the um, and they come up. Um, then we have this great initial um, attack scene, but the first time we see him acting in horror at anything is when he's looking in a mirror. And um, you start to realize, at least I did, putting all these clues together, that what this movie is really saying is that this is not about an outside invasion. It's about the inner sickness and corruption of our society. It's something that was buried and it's all has always been there. And now it's coming, literally coming up to the surface and we have to face it. Um, mm -hmm. Later in the movie where we have the uh, sequence with uh, Tim Robbins, and that also has a lot of criticism. Yes. And at the time, I actually also felt that the movie grinds to a halt there. Um, but uh, we then spend a half an hour in a dark basement with three characters. 
you know, you know it's, un it's underground. It's in the same place where the machines came from in the first place. It's underground. So what is this movie saying? Mm. This is actually showing us what modern society has wrought. Yeah. Um, deadbeat dads, um, kids that are running on their years or are uh, self-absorbed, um, uh, you know, uh, broken families, uh, broken marriages, and uh, this horrible um, idea of uh, this sort of silent, gun-toting man. Um, you know, uh, and we, when we see that that really exists in society, these are all things that really, really exist in society. So I think that the movies is sort of an indictment of uh, as I said before, like the sickness and the corruption that's in us already, that's already buried here on this planet. We don't need um, to be invaded. Um, you know, this version of the, the world is holding up a mirror and um, um, showing us, what, you know, the problems that we already have. Yes. You know, we're our own worst enemy. That's what I think it's really saying. These were some of the things that occurred to me as I really started studying. Hmm. Well, I definitely, whenever we talk about the familial aspects, yeah, I mean, I agree. There is that, um, you know, the, I suppose the breakdown of the family emphasis at the very start. But whenever you talk about the basement um, scene, it's, I think it's, there's an incredible moment, which is all credit to Dakota Fanning's performance. You know, whenever she asks, are we still alive? And she does this in a very, very effective kind of forced whisper. Um, and I can just imagine Spielberg kind of, you know, asking her to deliver the line a certain way. Um, but it's very, very effective. Uh, it's so striking, you know, whenever she asks, are we still alive? Uh, and it kind of is almost a, a kind of hypothesis of, of this whole um, dynamic between Rachel and her father, Ray, because uh, speaking as a father, I can totally relate She's always asking, are we going to be okay? Are we all right? Yes. And it's so real because that's what, honestly, that's what kids of her age would do. I mean, my mine is almost magnified because, you know, my, my daughter has autism, so she's highly even more anxious than, than, than normal. But it's very, very effective. And I think Dakota Fanning's performance, I mean, uh, yeah, I was never, I can relate to what you're saying, Mike. When I first saw it, I wasn't a massive fan, but certainly you know in later years it's i think it's got better with age like a nice wine you know it really it really it's a grower as they say and um and i think rick carter needs to be mentioned as well because when it, whenever you think about the, the location of ray's house it, this wonderful kind of foreboding bridge you know even touches like that with this sense of place location it's very very effective and already you know god this is really you know, where it, you can tell it's yes. going to be something quite, quite uh, momentous. Also, the, too obvious. Yes, also the fact that he uh, Spielberg chose to set the story in a very kind of a, a very direct, greedy kind of blue collar environment. So something that maybe the average people can relate more directly to, and not just seen as in other science fiction alien invasion type of movies when we see maybe. Maybe the higher end of a society dealing with the, this kind of, uh, of situations. Instead, we we here we just have the per, the perspective and the point of view of the simple guy, the average guy, and the average family, which is more often than not, sadly, a broken family. 
And, and this also reflects, I think, in the approach that John Williams used for the music and for the and how the music comments on the story and the character, because it's one of the very few scores where uh, he doesn't offer much uh, lyrical solace or much, uh, you know, um, comfort in terms of, you know, music. Of course, there are some very small and oasis of uh, of peace and tranquility of uh, peaceful music, but it's always kind of complicated. The harmony is not resolved. And it's very, I think for him, it was very, I think something very spontaneous to react to. He, he didn't force, I think, himself to, to write music differently than he usually does. But it's probably a way to react uh, as a, maybe a, a more as a person than as a musician, if you know what I mean. Mm. I actually think that the music reflects what I was describing about the fact that um, there is sort of a, a a sickness in culture and society that's mm. buried, and a lot of it sounds like it's a musical version of that. He's writing about um, this these low the, he, it's this low end disorganized unpleasant sound almost um is de deliberate um and uh, and it's um yeah it's very hard to articulate because he just does it so well and naturally mm -hmm. instinctively um but i think that that's that's certainly when i watched it again and listened to what the music was actually doing i realized that he's just scoring it perfectly he's really um giving us music almost that we don't really want to hear we don't want to have mm -hmm. to we don't want to face At the same time, um, Jeff and I talked about this. Um, he ended up doing a fantastic job with the notes, by the way, and ultimately I'm very glad he did it. But um, he, you could not come up with some recognizable theme to give the audience a crutch, as it were. Um, but there is some thematic um, component, yes. but yes. you have to really pay attention and find it. Um, but there's no familial familiar um comforting motif that you can just sort of hang on as you go through the story and my feeling about it is that it just helps contribute to the realism of it because look at what we're now dealing with in the world where um we can't go to the movies anymore and movie theaters are in danger of closing as we're reading in the news which is you know, very again disheartening and very impossible to believe right now but um, you have to think that um, with this invasion that is portrayed in the film, now the last thing that's going to be going on with the characters in the movie is the thought about going to the movies. Yes. However, they have the memory of going to the movies. 
They probably even have the memory of going to see movies about alien invasions, like, say, Independence Day. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, therefore, the score is almost a distant memory of what movie music sounds like. Because um, the world in which we could have movies made and big scores um, is actually being uh, annihilated. And so all that's left is sort of the distant strains of what we remember movie music sounding like. Because the world in which you could go to the movies is actually being taken away from you, is actually being destroyed. So um, the score actually can't sound like a movie. It has to sound like it's something coming from within and something that sounds like a memory or your attempt to grasp or hold on to um, your um, recollections of what film music sounds like. Yes, but it's also very primal because I mean, in some of the you know the biggest set pieces, you know the the ferry scene or the attack on the car, which is actually a, a cue that was dialed out in the final mix. Uh, you, but also other other cues, which in, in which John goes very big, very very loud. Even there is also this very I would say violent character. You know, it's it's very also uh, strange to think about this very. Uh, very even shy old man writing this big violent music which really puts you on the edge of your seat when you listen it as you said it's kind of unpleasant because and it also comes out uh, comes up all the the lowest uh, register in the all the instruments he, he has like eight horns and two tubas and two sets of timpanis and they produce this massive violent sound which is very disturbing in a way It's, it's probably one of the very first times, I think, that he went this full-blown, dark, violent, uh, in, in, especially for Spielberg, because in other maybe dark, grim movies from, from Steven, if we can say um, Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan, the music usually offered the, the solace, the comfort to the audience. While here, the music offers instead doesn't offer any kind of solace, like I was saying before. It's quite telling that Spielberg's kind of brief, wasn't it? That he he was quite vocal, saying he loves scary scores, and I, I, I'd imagine over a kind of I don't know, a, a bit of dinner or a coffee, you know, he said, "John, I, you know, I love scary scores. I want a really scary score." He put it in his notes, didn't he? I think his original line of notes, he says something like that. Um, you know, and uh, it is, uh, you know, I, I think the only respite, maybe one of the few respites is the, um, the refugee status, uh, you know, yeah. there, there's, it has that, um, almost elegiac, uh, you know, structure, but yeah, sorry, Mike, you were going to say, what are you going to say? No, it's, uh, no, I think you said that very beautifully. Um, it, 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, was, yeah, the idea of him writing it, but I, I suddenly what flashed into my mind was something the author Stephen King once said, where he, he once said that um, what fans uh, love is not me. What they really love is this thing that sort of circles around the room that's waiting for me to sit down and start typing. <laughs> it's, it's, so whatever it is comes from somewhere else. Doesn't matter if you're 70 years old or if you're a, de a demure, shy person. It's like if you're an artist, you just sort of sit down there and it comes from somewhere else. And in the case of a film composer, um, the film has to dictate what it is the movie needs. And, it, and I think it just flows out of his pencil. Um, and that's just sort of the remarkable thing that just keeps us, has kept us in awe for half a century with him and with every film composer, really. How do you do that, you know? Um, but, uh, but, you know, we just have to sort of um, bow down at the miracle of that and that he could do that and then do Munich and then do Memoirs of a Geisha, um, you know, basically in the same breath of a year. So, um I think he just always has operated that way. The movie says what it needs, and he just sits down, and the pencil starts moving, and then boom, there it is. But but did you did you have any any input from from John for for this release? Because I think this is one of the scores that probably uh, he doesn't like too much to revisit in terms of concert uh, performances, because it, it wasn't part of the Spielberg Williams Volume Three collaboration album that they did. Uh, couple of years ago and and i think he performed in concert maybe a couple of times once at the bowl and probably once in boston and then nothing else i think i think um maybe as we said the score doesn't really necessarily lend itself to that i'm not sure and they and they may have recorded something for that album but they didn't use it i'm not sure hmm. um, but uh well, they, it's, they, yeah, I think it just so, feels so much a part of the so germane to the film itself. Um, yeah. it, it's just that quality that we've been talking about. How it's just um, almost feels like it's emerging from the earth the same way the machines are, or emerging from the inside of the characters rather than being imposed onto the story from outside. Um, but he had no um, real input. There was concern about. Um, the um, the uh, variations of things. We had a lot of alternates. The ending, they kept rewriting several versions of it, and I had to come up with a way of presenting them all in the album without it being too repetitive and ultimately mm. was with it. Um, the length of the score ended up dictating the um, inclusion of the, the original album again. Um, and so uh, that was an interesting thing to do, but we ended up with two packed CDs as a result, and it it spread things around and it gave us enough variety that um, he was totally fine with it. But I don't think I was not going to get any um, feedback really because um, it was not, it was, it was a pretty tense set of sessions. And at one point um, everybody was, uh, it was closed off to everybody had to leave um, at, at one point um, for whatever reason. It was just, uh, it was a very, difficult uh, set of sessions to get through so i think um, there was just confidence in what i was going to do with it and with what uh, we knew um, of the material and 
that I'd come up with a way of presenting it that was going to be fine. I think the general perception uh, and consensus among fans was that uh, the original album contained almost virtually most of the score. I mean, uh, certainly most of the highlights, but uh, the, the fact that it was edited pretty I would say creatively in terms of you know how he juxtaposed things and how he uh, mixed the th cues together. So I think this new presentation really puts the score in a very brand new, shining new light. Despite it's a dark score, this new presentation really puts up the spotlight on on how the 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 narrative quality also of the music. Yeah, I mean um, it was a very organic process for me working on it. Gradually stitch it together and get this sense of how it really is working. Really, is working. Um, and then um, the logistics of figuring out the nuts and bolts of how to solve these um, problems of uh, multiple versions of cues and that it just was all an organic process. And you just know um, when it starts coming together when it feels right, and that's what happened here. Um, I'll get back to um, the, the car attack cue that you mentioned. The fact that that was included on the album um, but wasn't used in the movie at all. Um, and then jump in from that to um, the remarkable um, intertextual references that I spotted as I was studying the film, and that scene being one of them. I find it... Um, there was at one point when I was trying to figure out the sequencing of this album, where the I where I thought of leaving that cue out of the main assembly because it was already on the album, and mm -hmm. we had space considerations about how to break the discs and could we fit it all in one? And it just it, it actually went on for quite a while um, to work it out, and ultimately it did end up in the uh, main program. But I find it interesting that that scene was to have the music not used um, because. This is not the uh, alien invaders attacking. It's human beings attacking. Yeah. And I think that the absence of music there helps make the distinction. Um, makes it seem very, very real. Um, and there's one point where a person actually sort of breaks right through the windshield, like yes. puts a hole in the windshield. And when I looked at it again, I realized that a, a Velociraptor does the exact same thing in the last world. <laughs> and so maybe it's conscious, maybe it's not, but there's, but regardless of, there's an intertextual reference there of uh, equating human beings now to a prehistoric animal uh, in another Spielberg. Yes. And um, I thought that was fascinating. back and watch this 4K transfer a second time, I started seeing all these other things. Um, right from the, uh, first of all, you've got Morgan Freeman narrating. 
right? So, and he, of course, was from Amistad. So there's an intertextual reference right there. Then the opening shot of the film shows the southern end of Manhattan. Now, this was really, really blew my mind because at the time Spielberg made this movie, he probably had no idea that he was going to eventually make West Side Story. <laughs> But uh, if you look at the original West Side Story, Robert Wise, Warren Robbins' version from 1961, the overture plays over this sort of uh, colored, abstract um, image, and then it becomes an aerial shot in the southern end of Manhattan. Mm. Taken, of course, in the 60s, and therefore before the Twin Towers were so basically, the opening shot of the original West Side Story shows us the same thing that the shot of War of the Worlds, which shows us the southern tip of Manhattan um, with no Twin Towers. Mm. So that blew my mind. Um, and then you see Ray in this giant crane. So there again is another sort of little subtle uh, hint because he's already operating this big giant machine, which is mm. not going to be too much unlike the big giant machine that's going to come out of the uh, intersection in New, York, New Jersey a short time later. Um, mm -hmm. It also reminded me a lot of um, the opening of Jurassic Park, where that forklift comes through the trees and we sort yeah. of for a second think it's a dinosaur. Right, um, yes. And the... Uh, Shooter! The forklift <laughs> scene in um, Adventures of Tintin as well. Um, so oh, it's yes. weird how, um, uh, you know, to see Tom Cruise driving this machine just, again, to me, was another clue that the, this movie is about the problems that are already there. You know, mm -hmm. we just bury them underground and hope that they go away. Um, then, of course, you have um, the closing shot of Munich. Yes, it's true. Place, I think on Roosevelt Island, um, which is... That would take place be in 1972 or three, yeah. the final scene of the film, where of course the twin towers were recently built and are in the closing shot, and it talks about how um, you uh, can get rid of terrorists, but there will always be somebody to replace them. Yes. Replace them, and then we see the twin towers there. So there's a lot of I think. Um, social commentary that runs through Spielberg's films, particularly when he's addressed that era with movies like Munich and The yeah, Post. Yeah. Um, it's almost like you need, they're all clues, they're all pieces of one big puzzle. Um, and I don't think you leave War of the Worlds out of it just because it's fantasy. I think actually more so, it's showing us things that we make us very uncomfortable. That's probably why I was very uncomfortable in 2005 seeing it. Wasn't quite ready to face that yet. Yeah. But now, um, perhaps also partially due to the fact that, very bizarrely, we are uh, dealing with a situation in the world now where, um, it, where germs are killing us. And um, we don't have the resistance to a virus. And... That's the very thing that ultimately does the invaders in, is that they don't have the immunity to um, the germs and bacteria that we do. Mm -hmm. Right now, we could use some of that. So um, <laughs> it's, it's very strange um, yeah. where human biology is what saves the day in World of Worlds. 
Yeah. But it's not helping us right now. So it was probably the fact that I looked at this movie and worked on this score in the early days of this current crisis um, that also contributed to sort of opening my eyes to what else is going on here. Um, but, and, and Tom Cruise, I know the, the cat, we mentioned the casting of him before. I think it's actually was brilliant because he does not get to, we, we expect him to be heroic, but here he is actually very, very vulnerable. Yes. Covered yes. with, um, mm. ash, yeah. which is basically evaporated, uh, you, you know, the, we're mostly water. So once that's a heat ray evaporates the water, you're just left with this dust covering him. Very vulnerable, very scared, very terrified, and very um, uh, unsuited to doing the task at hand, which is being a father and being responsible, but forced to. Um, yes. Now we have this situation where um, kids were going to school, and now they're home. Now parents have to actually be there more. And on top of it, they might be out of work. So they have to be even more there for their kids than we were before. So now suddenly this movie is just even more resonant, um, mm. maybe even more uncomfortable. Um, but it, it just seems to just get more and more brilliant um, because at the end of the day, you know, it's about us coming together and um, um, taking a stand and being observant to what's going on around us. Um, and uh, basically killing the worst part of us. And that's what I think uh, happens in the, with the Ogilvy scene with Tim Robbins, um, is that it's about Tom Cruise having to slaughter the worst part of himself or the worst part of humanity. Very true. Um, yes. you know, that, that's the thing we need to get rid of. And yes, he does some heroic things after that, brings down one of the tripods, then points out to the military that the shields are, are, are down, but um, the fact that he's just this sort of random, average civilian guy um, uh, is the somebody's got to do it. Somebody eventually has to be the person to make the first step, and it's good. And we just happen to follow through this story um, the person who's going to end up doing that. Um, I also want to talk about the character of the oldest son. He got lots of praise. Yes. Or that he lives at the end. Um, but it's a brilliant performance by Justin Chapman, who became a very good actor. Um, after that, has done some fantastic things. But um, what occurred to me looking at it again is how typical he is of um, a kid of that age, very self-absorbed, keeps the headphones on all the time, doesn't want to talk to anybody, doesn't want to have, doesn't want to enjoy this moment of throwing ball with his dad. Um, and just very, very self-absorbed and watch his progression and his turn through the film yeah. um, to, to eventually saying, no, we have to take a stand. We can't mm -hmm. let these things destroy us. Um, he suddenly discovers a conscience and, um, and, and basically what gets born in him is this very, um, 
um, natural instinct to come to your country's defense. Mm -hmm. It's something that Spielberg, of course, addressed in Saving Private Ryan. Right. We have Tom Brokaw's great book called The Greatest Generation. We wonder if the world was faced with another World War II, if, at least in this country, if I could speak plainly, if America really would unite together and if we would send, you know, our 20-year-olds by the thousands overseas to be shot at. Um, you know, uh, the Robbie character is sort of emblematic of that. And yet he eventually sees, he comes to a place where he actually sees, no, we actually have to stand, we have to unite, we can't let them destroy us. Um, so therefore, have that character perished ultimately at the end, the message would be a terrible one. You know, mm, he needed yeah. to survive, he needed to come back. Um, yeah. And then, Several years later, when Spielberg made Lincoln, uh, conveniently, the son of Abraham Lincoln is also named Robbie. Um, and he has a scene there where um, he wants to go and, and join um, the army True. Um, and not be sidelined. Um, and there's this great scene um, with them outside of um, military hospital, uh, followed by a scene where Lincoln has to talk to his wife yeah. Um, about why it's a natural instinct and you imagine how much he'll resent us if we stop him from doing it. Um, so there again seems to be another sort of through line connecting different movies by Steven Spielberg. But um, uh, I really got that watching it this time around with that character that uh, he really developed sort of a sense of national pride and cultural consciousness um, and the need to stick together and fight for something mm -hmm. that um, is sort of lacking in the youth generation where um, um, for various reasons, social reasons, economic reasons, we've become very selfish, very me, myself and I type of society. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things, one of the many things that I think War of the Worlds does is sort of shine a spotlight on that aspect of ourselves and um, ask what will it take to reawaken this sense of coming together. We saw it a little bit after 9-11. It gradually, in my opinion, seems to kind of dissipated, but um, there certainly have been improvements. Uh, the city of New York changed, changed drastically after 9-11 much friendlier, much calmer, much quieter, much safer. Um, and uh, until now that is, but um, it, uh, you know, it, it takes that kind of tragedy and that kind of dramatic change in our culture to bring people together. And I think by taking a character of that age, um, who was very, very typical American teenager and seeing that awakening of consciousness in him, of conscience, I should say, um, it's quite profound, quite, quite uh, beautifully written.
think uh, also that had to do with the fact that John wrote so many different variations or versions actually of the of the final scene uh, of the reunion in Boston scene. I mean, it's very fascinating to hear all the various permutations he went through. So I want to ask you: Do you think he uh, wrote so many alternate versions of that sequence because there was some kind of uncertainty? from him or Spielberg perhaps about the, the exact tone to give to the scene or maybe he just wrote several different versions to offer to Spielberg as a, you know pick the one you, you like the best or something like that well I'm just taking a look as we're talking here at some of my notes about where the, where each of those came in the recording sessions um, and they seem to have done an initial one and then came back few times later to do it. Um, seemed like two of them were done together, and then there was a third one, and then later on, two more done together. I can only just speculate that it was that sequence that maybe was where some of the tension was, um, because I think just you kind of just know when it works, and if it doesn't, if it's not quite working, you will go to the music to see if perhaps we can change or adjust something to help it along. Um, and uh, it's not the first or the last time that that happened with Spielberg score that John's done. Um, I think that's a very um, complicated process and it's just a matter of um, when it's working, they'll know it and let's try a few different things out. But uh, I imagine that in order to make make that work it just had to be exactly precisely right and uh, it was confusing to figure out because there ended up being a combination of three versions assembled together to make a film and a different sections mm. of the same three versions to um on the album yes like the other so it was um so aggravating to figure out that actually ended up making one separate pro tool session with just that cue so that I could figure them all out and figure out how to get them all on the album. It's very it's fascinating because it really is a peek into the, the the laborious process because sometimes we tend maybe to think that some things are just automatic for the composer to come up with you know brilliant solutions for every cue for every scene but sometimes it's a struggle I mean even for a for a for a consummate uh, composer and professional like John. Mm. It's interesting, I think, because uh, so on disc two, which is track 19, is the first, um, that, that's the alternate, um, first alternate of Boston Street finale. Uh, and it's near the end where this is, there's this kind of minor chord, you know, the, the harp is playing the minor keys. Uh, I found that quite striking, um, which obviously they decided to drop. Um, but I must actually match it up to the film just out of pure curiosity to see how that works in the dynamic. But um, I think as a as a complete listening experience, it, it's fascinating and, and it's great that um, that was signed off on because I know, Mike, in the past you've said that certain things haven't kind of been approved or signed off. So at least, you know, you know it's great to have this window into yeah, it's the, degree the process. It's maybe a little bit of a superficial process because it's a matter of how does the track list look on paper? Does it look right? And mm. a big red flag would go off if I throw three alternates all in succession, unless they're drastically different from each other. Um, 
but you know, so it's just a matter of, and then you have the space limitations if we're doing this on CD. Um, so it's just a matter of working at it until I know that it's going to sound okay and that it will, that he'll accept it. Um, you know, so it needs to still to as much as possible be an album rather than just sort of a archival assembly of stuff. Um, yes. But, but, you know, um, there's really no problem with things, um, that are, um, were done in this part of his career. Um, you know, provided that the normal, uh, sensitivity is, um, applied, um, and our working method is just, uh, you know, in place. Um, there's not a problem, but it just was, uh, this one had logistical challenges and just making it all fit. And, uh, Doug Fake and Entrada did want to include the original album. Um, I think there was one version where I thought, well, we could break the score earlier and I can continue it on the CD and then the alternates. And I said, but if we include the album, it's very, very tight. Um, but, you know, we ultimately figured it out. That was easy compared to what it took to put the thing together in the first place because uh, that was the hardest project I ever worked on in terms of assembly. Yeah, really? Why? Why so? Oh, yeah. Actually, you'd think it wouldn't be, but... Um, it was done. Uh, God, I hope that this techno techno babble doesn't get too awful. It was hard enough to write it for the booklet, um, but everything here is from the actual digital data from 2005. And um, they had all of um, you know Pete Miles, who had done the music editing on Harry Potter, was brought over to um, work on this here, um, and. Um, so Paramount had all the original hard drives from 2005 that they had been migrated and they were at the outset looking to, to find, um, stems with which to do an Atmos mix of the film. Yeah. And this was the initial conversations I had with Marty Cohen about, um, you know, can we, can we do that? You know, is there multi-track things that we could do to, um, um, create uh, the, the Atmos mix, have the music element for it. Well, it didn't seem to be there, apparently, on any of this hard drive material. Um, so when I saw this printout of what all the uh, files were on these hard drives, I wasn't seeing anything that looked like any finished mixes at all. So I reached out to Pete, and he says, I don't understand. I delivered finished 5.1 mixes of every cue. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like it should be exactly what we found on Prisoner of Azkaban, but Paramount doesn't have it. And I showed him, I sent him pictures of what the, uh, I said, look, this is what they have. It's all 5.1 separate stems, 5.1 orchestra, 5.1 percussion, 5.1 synthesizer, 5.1 choir. And this is all just basically unmixed. It's not unlike um, I had a minority report, but on that, it was very, very clear where those mixed downs were, transferred it all, um, redid the performance edits, remixed them together, and it was done. Um, with this, we were dealing with um, hard drive full of all this 2005 data. And uh, first of all, it was in a file format that Pro Tools, current version of Pro Tools no longer supports. Um, and then um, every single cue was its own session. And 
within each of those sessions, every single take was its own playlist. So I actually couldn't see all the different takes put together. And there were some of those major set piece cues. I could actually open it and see Pete Miles' original edits, but it also included all the little nips and tucks that were done to conform it to the picture as the picture edit went on. So it was usable, but it needed to have um, some additional work done to basically have the performance edits without having the movie edits. Um, so it was such a complicated process because what I had to do is go on to an old Pro Tools rig, open up every single session separately, and then save it in a, in a more recent version of Pro Tools. So that was just this labor-intensive days of doing this, many, 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 many sessions. Then um, I could um, then take all of those new sessions, take it to the current Pro Tools rig, open them all up again, and then save them again in the current Pro Tools. Then I took um, each of the raw takes out of its separate play playlist, put them all in one playlist so I could um, see them all together in a row, and then go back and listen to a um, DAT reference tape that I got from Sean Murphy of, of the finished what the finished cues sounded like in 2005 and how they were edited. Um, and then rebuild all the performances um, based on that. Um, and then it was a matter of now taking as many as 24 tracks, six tracks, orchestra, percussion, uh, synthesizer, choir. And uh, first I made brand, I, first I made the 5.1 mixes for Paramount um, with all the performance edits intact. Basically what Pete Miles says he delivered at the time that uh, could not be found. Um, and that got me, after many weeks of work, to what would normally be the starting point. Um, and then I was able to um, build it out as uh, an album and then mix it to a uh, two-channel. Um, uh, and, and it basically all came from a sort of reorganized, um, converted version of, of the original audio from 2005 straight out to the two assembled masters for the two discs. So it was this long, long, long road of um, taking 15-year-old data and working with it so that it could actually be used again. So it was, it was, it was, it was quite, um, it just felt like a lot of uh, button pushing, a lot of waiting, but it eventually got there. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't think that something just 15 years old that was done digitally would be so hard to come by. Um, but at that point, they weren't doing the analog um, masters of the stereo mixes, um, which we would have um, for, say, something like um, um, something say, like uh, Jurassic Park. There would be the half-inch stereo mixes um, on analog tape. We just transfer them again. We got high resolution, and, and, and you got it. Um, this was good high resolution digital data from 2005, but needed to be completely organized and work with um, to get it to what I needed. The irony is, is that the most recent Pro Tools update now supports that old audio file. Audio file. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's, so that's why you know I've learned. Um, 
I have an old a Pro Tools 9 rig coming or up to, Pro Tools um, 2020 now, but they used to have numbers like Apple um, uh, operating system numbers. Um, but uh, yeah, so I had to open these Pro Tools 5 sessions in Pro Tools 9 and then convert them again. Um, but I know other engineers who have to keep these old um, versions of Pro Tools running because you never know when you come up with something that the it's not entirely backward compatible as it should be. So, um, but at the end of the day, it was great because it's like we weren't having to redo anything. This is actually what was recorded and mixed at the time. Um, mm. It was already perfectly good. It just needed to be um, worked with um, through the modern um, computer operating systems to get it to the point where we could work with it again. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work absolutely yeah it was really going crazy for a while there just it's like i couldn't actually get to the music it was all just you know it was like pencil pushing it was just all um you know working with nuts and bolts and you know plywood and saws you weren't actually seeing the house you just were seeing all the little tools mm. so took a while to get there. When it started coming together and I started to finally listen, that's when sort of the clouds parted and I'm like, oh my God, this is a brilliant score. This is really, really working. But it took a while to get there. Yeah. It's good that you mentioned Peter Miles because, you know, this was quite, we've talked about 2005 being a kind of seminal year, but that was the year that Ken Wambrough pretty much retired, wasn't it? From being music editor so Peter Myers, and this was, the, I think War of the Worlds was the one that Ken Mamba didn't even go, go, go near, did he? Uh, I think. I could be wrong. but Right. But, I mean, Ramiro was already working for John, but I don't know why he wasn't on this. For whatever reason, they had Pete come over for it. But I think mm. Ramiro had already been assisting Ken prior to this, but maybe he was mm. busy. So, I don't know. Yeah. Just, um, but kind of an end of an era, though, really, wasn't it? You know. Pete. So I'm like, and Pete said, "No, you should have it." And they're like, "Well, they don't. I have all of this data, but uh, none of it is what you're saying it should be." So, I mean, I wanted what exactly what we had on Prison of Azkaban, and it should have existed, but it didn't. But early DreamWorks period was a little bit inconsistent. Um, things were not always done exactly the same way. I mean, Minority Report was brilliant in getting the tapes that we had um, and, uh, you know, easy to reassemble and put together, beautiful high resolution. This was um, very handicapping because I was, was good in a way, just working with things that were migrating on a new hard drive, but uh, I never quite had to face that before of um, taking something that the data was fine. It just needed to be um, sort of translated so that it could uh, um, work with our current equipment. It's fascinating. But I mean, it's, it, what's good is that now there's a finished, uh, now it's all been fully and completely archived. But uh, do you, did you have also to rebuild the original album or did you use a master, the original master for that? That was all rebuilt once I did all the remixes. Um, okay. I just reassembled the album. Uh, Paramount gave us the clean Morgan Freeman narration. Um, for that to you know, but it was all basically completely rebuilt. Um, and there's some differences, there were some performance differences, um, and uh, you know, edit points here and there, so slight variations that always happens. Um, yeah, 
but uh, so yeah, it's it's all consistent all the way through. So you know, didn't use uh, the original album for anything other than just a, as a reference. But did he record the chorus uh, separately than the orchestra, or, did, or was it recorded together? How 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 was it put together? I mean, in terms of recording, because there are lots of elements, you know, percussion, lots of percussion synthesizers more than usual probably and also chorus together with a big orchestra so how that was recorded was did he uh, do separate stems for that or did he record all together and then you had to remix everything mm, i recall well there certainly were chorus that was that was done separately there were little sweeteners where they'd have a group of people going yep yep <laughs> things like that as the, as the heat ray would hit them they would fly that in um and uh i i definitely had it all clean so i think they must have either been either partitioned or done separately mm -hmm. um, and then there were certainly um uh um sweeteners and parts where they absolutely were certain the uh synthesizers were um probably done as a bed so it was laid down first and then they're the same take after take after take it's the same synthesizer patched in um mm -hmm. as well as uh synthesized percussion i think the, so that was done as a bed and so those didn't change take to take but the orchestra did mm -hmm. so um yeah you know a lot of these things i've said this before but sometimes when i'm done with it then i start blanking <laughs> <laughs> You know, the PT, this, this one particularly has some PTSD about working with it. Um, when I go back and think about how long it took and how hard it was, it really was hard. It's just, un, it's just it's deceptive when you see a finished thing. Oh, it's just stereo mixes from 15 years ago, big deal. No, it was actually a real lot of it. Yeah, I guess so. Especially when you have to work on multiple projects at the same time. Again, it's even more daunting <laughs> in many ways. So uh, can we expect something more this year from, from you, Mike, in terms of a new upcoming releases for, for, from John Williams Archives? Or maybe we have to wait for until next year? Um, at the moment, um, I going to, my prediction would be that we won't have another one this year. That's just because of some things that are sort of in the approval process and mm -hmm. the uh, slowness of uh, um, of that um, due to the current situation. Um, we might be a su surprise. I mean, if it is, it would be as, as sudden to me as it would be for everybody else um, that there might we might suddenly have uh, a breakthrough and like oh we can get one out but right now um, I think we're at least as a contingency um, going to assume that uh, um, it will need to wait hopefully like February maybe but uh, okay. we again we could be surprised there are certainly other titles uh, coming but a lot of them are really in a in a just a uh, in just sort of stuck in an approval uh, mode right now, but uh, they'll get on stuff soon. Yeah, and, and talking about, uh, you know, broadly, I mean, more generally, uh, where we are in terms of uh, the overall archiving of John Williams' uh, recordings from, from, from his all over career, because in the last decade, I think that you did uh, such an amazing job of really compiling, archiving, and releasing uh, in the end, uh, 
so so much of his classic scores, so much of also his less famous scores, stuff from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and even the 2000s. So where we are now, so are, how much work there is still to be done in this, in the sense of archiving and building the full complete archive of restored John Williams scores. There's mm, enough uh, ahead for me to, that I'm happy about, um, you know, at least for a few years. Um, you know, there's several, there's several to still do. So, um, yeah, so at the moment, um, yeah, I'm not going to complain about it. Um, I think eventually we will reach the point where there isn't that much more to do. But um, um, for right now, uh, you know, at least the next few years, I'll have some more to do. Mm -hmm. I think it was, um, we didn't chat about this earlier this year, but it, I think it was nice and refreshing to have you know, the reboot of Amazing Stories on Apple TV, it was uh, quite welcome to have the original music used because as we all know, it's quite uh, common for them just to completely shelve what was done before and do a reimagining and everything, you know. So I know you worked on that, Mike, so it might be interesting for us to hear, just chat to us a little bit about Amazing Stories, you know, that opening theme sequence. I mean, uh, was there any talk about using more of Williams' music, or was it always just that main title? Yeah, I was approached to just see, ask about that. Um, there was, uh, you know, and the problem was um, we called in a lot of elements, and there was a couple of early variations of the theme. We had two-inch tape for so I had multi-channel, because they wanted to do an Atmos mix. And unfortunately, the... Uh, they kept coming back to it. And I think there's one episode that went out, probably the first one that was finished through the production line actually went out with it, an earlier variation of it. Um, and, uh, but the theme that ultimately got used on the show was recorded at the sessions for the mission and the multi-tracks couldn't be found. So um, all we had was the three channel mixes and um, I had to find the right takes and um, discovered that that one minute of the music had used three, I think three takes and had six performance edits. So they really were um, meticulous about coming up with exactly the right performance that they wanted to the point where they kept coming back and re-recording it. And then at the end um, did uh, multiple takes combined together. Um, so I, all I could give them was three channels. Um, but at least it was accurate. And I think from that, they created an Amos mix, just expanded it out, um, you know, as, the, as they could. But I don't know why you know, we have the multi-track on Ghost Train, and but not on the mission. Mission's such a kind of showcase, really. It's, that's a terrific, yeah. uh, what, 30, 35 minutes, 40 minutes? So it's quite a, yeah. a lot of music there. It's really you know, terrific. It's great. Terrific and uh, um, I wouldn't want to necessarily remix the score. I mean, that was Dan Wallen, I think. And uh, it's a terrific mix and you know, terrific recording. Um, but for the theme, it was kind of disappointing to not find the multi-channel that they um, had hoped to locate to rebuild it. But I gave them what I could. But we did, we did look at a lot of it. What was weird um, about um, that show, because several tapes came in throughout the show, 
there was no consistency with how it was done. Each one of them was actually like a little movie where whoever the composer was, they all worked the way that they were used to working. Yeah. So the documentation, oh, right. yeah. they, you know, if they if they wanted to label their cues M1, M2, M3, they did it. If they like to use um, R1P1, they did that. If they liked 1M1, they did that. So from episode to episode, there was no consistency. It's like each one was a, like its own little movie. Um, in which the composer and his people use whatever their normal methodology was. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty tough job of archiving and restoring all that stuff, absolutely. But that that, that was put out on, on CD a few years ago, I think. Uh, more, more, more than a few years ago now. Yeah, quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. 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 There was three, three volumes. Three and, volumes, uh, yes. There was quite a gap between, I think, the first one and then the second and third were quite close together from memory. But yeah, I mean, I think they're long out of print now, but they were fantastic. Um, and it, it was a treat, actually, for all of us. But obviously, even, you know, the slightest detail, it was great to finally hear <laughs> the Amblin logo, this lovely, and there's quite a few versions of it as well. You know, this, you know, the sound of our youth, you know, the, the end of like the VHS before it, you know, got eaten by the recorder. You know, that lovely Amblin logo was such a lovely 20 seconds of just William's magic, you know? Yeah. I think it, Young Sherlock Holmes was amazing yeah. the first time we heard it. Was it Young Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Probably the first, I think, uh, and I used to, you know, watch that film all the time as a kid. And Depends I still think on what you saw. I mean, uh, Young Sherlock Holmes opened not that, around the same time frame as The Color Purple. Both of those films have the logo. Right? So I guess it just depended on which you saw first. Oh, right. <laughs> yes, back in the days of those like uh, six month weights of uh, yeah. transatlantic releases. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. uh, guys, really, thank you very much for this beautiful insight on this new release. Thank you, Mike, for shedding so many really insightful and deep thoughts about uh, even even personal thoughts about this the, the movie and the music and what it means uh, still today for 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 us and and. And, and I hope also that listeners and John Williams fans around the world will will really rediscover and enjoy and find new new way of of, of, of appreciation for for this work because I think really it's really one of his most underrated of of, of, of his career and probably something that needs more attention and more study about his many his many fans around the world. Yeah, and I think that. Um looking at it today with everything that's going on with us yeah. uh, you know at the it's, it, there's a bleakness to it and, and um, some horrific qualities to it but at the end I think there's a there's an optimism there there's mm. an optimism to the ending um, uh, ultimately about um, our resiliency mm. and, and that no matter what we're faced with we will come through it we just have to stick together and we will come through it. And I think now more than ever, that's just such an important message and it's an accurate one. And so check the movie out again, listen to the music. I think it has a lot to offer. Yeah, it's definitely very timely. And I think this new release is, is really superb and uh, it brings certainly a, a new angle, uh, quite refreshing uh, to the whole score. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that I got to work on this one, really, genuinely. It was daunting and it was difficult, but uh, I actually got something out of it, personal, that uh, was very strengthening. 
really, really strengthening. So as if I didn't have enough to thank Steven Spielberg and John Williams for in my life, I have I can add this. So thank you for this 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 gift right now when we all need it so much. Yeah. yeah. Well put. That, really well. That, that's a beautiful way to to end our conversation together. So guys, uh, thank you very much for joining me again. Uh, once well, thank again, you uh, guys, for staying up into the wee hours once more. And uh, until the next time, which I hope will be very soon. Uh, yes, really. definitely. Stay okay. well, stay healthy, be well. and and be and be well. All the best, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.